Let's pray together as we come around this passage in Nehemiah 6. Join me in prayer. Lord, um, quite simply, I ask that the Spirit of God be about His business in our hearts this morning. Pray that the Spirit of God would influence what I say and don't say from this pulpit. The Spirit of God would influence that which would stick with our, in our hearts and our minds and what may be dismissed. Then all things, O oh God, that the Spirit of God is doing what He wants to do in our lives as we make ourselves available to hearing from him this morning. So guide us into all truth. Teach us your ways. May we be strengthened in our faith and our resolve this morning to serve you well, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. An elderly man lay in a hospital with his wife of 55 years sitting at his bedside. Is that you, Ethel, at my side again, he whispered. Yes, dear, she answered. He softly said to her, remember years ago when I was in the veterans hospital, you were with me then. Yes, I remember, she replied. And remember when you were with me when we lost everything in a fire, he said. Yes, I remember, came Ethel's reply. And remember, Ethel, when I lost my job and we had nothing, you were with me then too. Yes, I remember. The man sighed and said, I tell you, Ethel, you're bad luck. (laughs) As we have gone, as we go through different things in our lives, God is at our sides. Now, sometimes that's cause for blame on on our parts. But God is at our side, and folks, that's a good thing. He is our strength. We have a God who fights our battles, but that doesn't mean we don't do any fighting of our own. There are things worth fighting for, and since pain is the price for progress, as we saw last week, there will be a fight. There's no way around it. And may that stark reality not cause us to shrink back from what it is that God has put in our hearts to do. And as we were challenged in our study in the book of Nehemiah a couple of weeks back, we are to hold on tenaciously to a holy must. This I must do. And that suggests that there are things we must not do. There are things we must not do. And that's our subject for this morning. And the last thing one knows is what to put first. A noted concert violinist was asked the secret of her mastery of the instrument. She said, well, I can answer that with two words, planned neglect. She then went on to explain, there are many things that used to demand my time. 
When I went to my room after breakfast, I made my bed, I straightened the room, I dusted and did whatever seemed necessary. And when, then when I finished my chores, I then turned to my violin practice. This routine prevented me from accomplishing what I should on the violin, so I reversed things. I deliberately planned to neglect everything else until my practice time was complete, and that program of planned neglect is the secret of my success. Planned neglect is necessary for mastery of some skill or discipline. And in the same way, there are things that have to go if we are to live out what God has put in our hearts to do. Perhaps passion is missing from our lives today because we're trying to do too many things. Is that a possibility? I wonder which is worse, to be sidelined from doing God's work due to a major spiritual blowout or to be so busy on lesser things that we never get around to kingdom work. The last thing one knows is what to put first. Reminded of a rather comical, but a reminder that primary things sometimes become secondary. Victor Borge told about a couple going on vacation, and they're standing in line waiting to check their bags at the airline counter. The husband said to the wife, I wish we had brought the piano. The wife said, why? We've got 16 bags already. The husband said, yes, I know, but the tickets are on the piano. They're in trouble. They're in trouble. See, the people in Nehemiah's day put first things first. They were called to rebuild the wall. And as we've already seen, there are all kinds of invitations to get us off our wall. The word for today is stay on the wall. Stay on the wall. That means we must learn to say no. And in the Christian community, we are made to feel guilty for saying no. Yet to cultivate a passionate heart, we must learn the importance of the correct usage of the word no. Now, of course, you don't have to teach your little ones that word, for toddlers have that one word down quite well. (laughs) Perhaps that's because, in part, they hear it so often from the lips of their parents. Remember that t-shirt on a toddler that said, uh, my name is not no? (laughs) That's what they feel like sometimes. I still have to fight my first inclination to say no before hearing all of the information of my six-year-old's request. My wife will look at me and say, you haven't heard it yet. (laughs) I'm already saying no. So we have that one down, perhaps. But I hope by the end of this morning, we will see the importance of the correct usage of the word no. Scripture tells us and teaches us in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, the importance of saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Jesus reminds us that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. This is no trivial matter. Consider the consequences of a failure to say no when temptation strikes. Or the parent who bemoans, I just can't say no to cute little Johnny. Or a single couple not able to say no when the heat of passion is turned up. Or the one who can't stay on task because they can't say no to the urgent. Or the kids who feel cheated of attention from mom and dad because they can't say no to everyone else's request for their time. The consequences are deadly. 
Cultivating a passionate heart requires learning when to say no. This morning, we have a lesson and when to say no. And there are at least five areas from this passage here um, that, that, that tell us when we need to say no. There's five areas where we need to say no. The first area is we are to say no to distractions. We are to say no to distractions. That's really the umbrella over the whole thing this morning. But I also want to make it a, a singular point here. We are to say no to distractions. The challenge for Nehemiah is to keep in mind why he was there in Jerusalem. Why are you here in this place at this time? As we saw last week, Nehemiah gives his construction crew a courage infusion so they continue in their work. Follow along with me. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1. Kind of a journal of Nehemiah here. Nehemiah says in, in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, he says, when word came to Mo, Curly, and Larry, no, I mean, sorry, <laughs> Simbalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. They're very close to completing this thing. So the enemies hear about that, and, and they, they don't like it that the work is continued, and it's almost completed. And so they need to come up with some fresh way to stop the work. Listen, if you can't get to the workers, then go after the leader. Take the leader down, and then there'll be this domino effect. It gets very nasty here. I mean, it gets real personal. They try to lure Nehemiah 27 miles away from Jerusalem under the appearance of just wanting to get together. Let's just meet over breakfast at this nice little diner in Ono. Look what it says in verse 2. Sambal and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. I considered entitling this sermon saying no to Ono. <laughs> I thought better of it. But Nehemiah here sees through their proposal, for he says at the end of verse 2, catch this, but they were scheming to harm me. They were scheming to harm me. The enemies were well informed about the progress in the wall, and Nehemiah was equally informed about their scheme. Folks, stay informed. Stay informed. There is a place for healthy skepticism. I'm not talking about cynicism, but at times, we can be such a trusting bunch that we get the wool pulled over our eyes. You don't have to go along with every invitation to sit down with someone if you know that their intention is to harm. You don't. More importantly, Nehemiah had a job to do and he would say no to anything that would take him from that task. Nehemiah states his reason as to why he will not meet with them in verse 3. Through a messenger, Nehemiah has this to say. Catch these words. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Now, Nehemiah is not being arrogant here. He just knows what God has put in his heart to do, and he would not be distracted from it. He goes on. The end of verse 3. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? 
Now, what mom wouldn't love to quote this verse throughout the day? (laughs) Mom, I need you to come here. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? (laughs) Or men, as you're involved in that project, you hear, honey, can you come here for a minute? Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I'd suggest you don't quote that verse. (laughs) A little advice. The point here, though, is Nehemiah would not leave, even temporarily, his top priority. First things first. Nehemiah didn't get nasty. He didn't attack their motives. He simply said no to the inferior. The lesser. We need the resolve of Nehemiah and say, we're carrying on a great project. Whether it's a great task of investing in your children or the shaping of others' lives through your personal ministry or building redemptive relationships with unbelievers or carrying out your support or leadership role in the church, why should the work of God stop while you leave and chase lesser matters? Say no to distractions. There's a story involving the baseball catcher Yogi Berra and slugger Hank Aaron. The teams were playing in the World Series, and as usual, Yogi was keeping up his ceaseless chatter, intending to distract the batters as they came up to the plate. Well, as Aaron came to the plate, Yogi tried to distract him by saying, Henry, you're holding the bat all wrong. You're supposed to hold it so you can read the trademark on the bat. Aaron didn't say a word, but when the next pitch came, he hit it into left field bleachers for a home run. After rounding the bases and taking home plate, Aaron looked at Yogi Bear and said, I didn't come up to the plate to read. <laughs> the last thing one knows is what to put first. Stay focused. And some will try and divert you from your mission, some intentionally, some unintentionally. Nehemiah related everything to his primary calling. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the pressure to leave the best things will persist. Say no to distractions. Secondly, we need to say no to reconsider a God-given conviction. We need to say no to reconsider a God-given conviction. I love verse 4. Makes me smile. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Can we meet? No. Can we meet? No. Can we meet? No. Can we meet? Sound like one of your kids? No. What part of no don't you understand? If it was wrong in the first place, then it is wrong four requests later. Never reconsider a God-given conviction. Refuse to be worn down by repeated offers. Because some people can't accept no for an answer. Some people will try to wear you down through repeated requests until they get their own way. Some people have learned the art of being pushy and shaming someone into doing something in order to get what they want. So they throw this hissy fit or some adult version of that. Pout, cry, push hard enough, quote a verse, yell to get their own way. Listen, if that is you, You need to stop. If you are pressuring your girlfriend or boyfriend to go against their convictions, that is wrong. 
If you're trying to shame someone to meet a want that you have, that is wrong. And if you're on the other end of that, you need to say no to those behaviors. Say it in a spirit of love, in an attitude of respect, but saying no is not unchristian. We need to remain firm in our no. Live out of conviction, not of guilt. Now, let me pause right here and ask, and you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you know right now what some of your priorities should be? In what way, then, has your inability to say no got in the way of carrying those priorities out? Why do you get off track so easily? Has it been the constant asking or pressuring of others, of your kids, that, that has kind of worn you down? You say, well, this is my conviction, but I'm just going to give in to this because I don't want to fight this anymore. Has it been the pressure from others that has you reconsidering a conviction? Can you identify some personal distractions that are taking your focus off of your God-given priorities? Consider some distractions for you right now that have the potential to pull you away from your God-given convictions. Consider that. I need to move on. Thirdly, thirdly, we need to say no to a third thing, and that is we need to say no to mindlessness. We need to say no to mindlessness. Look with me at verse 5. Okay, fourth time doesn't work. We'll try a fifth time. Then the fifth time, Zimbalat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter. Now listen, it was customary to send sealed letters to guarantee its authenticity. Why was this letter unsealed? The answer is obvious. So that everyone could read it as the slander could spread quickly. Verse 6 tells us what is in the letter. Again, this makes me smile. Verse 6, it says, look at it, in which was written, it is reported. (laughs) It is reported. That's the same thing as saying, they say. (laughs) You know, they say. They say has effectively divided brothers and sisters in Christ. It is reported. Who reported it? Where did it come from? Can the source be trusted? It is reported. They say has forced pastors out of churches. They say has harmed the reputation of Christian leaders and institutions and ministries throughout the evangelical community. Say no to mindlessness. There's this poem, a short poem that I read. It says, have you heard of the terrible family they and the dreadful venomous things they say? Why, half the gossip under the sun, if you trace it back, you will find begun in that wretched house of they. It is reported. Nehemiah is on the receiving end of they say. It is reported. And then verse 6 goes on to say, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem says it's true. Oh, Geshem says it's true then it must be true. If Geshem says it's true. This is just amazing, this passage. It's so human nature. Watch for name dropping. Be careful you don't attempt to give strength to your false report by dragging in someone else with a little more clout. I heard the other day, and Chuck Swindoll said, now I got some leverage. Why? 
And please, loved ones, don't believe everything you hear or read. Don't believe something just because it's whispered to you. Say no to mindlessness. It still amazes me what some Christians accept is true about someone else. Let's not be naive. It's been joked that gossip is news you have to hurry and tell somebody else before you find out it isn't true. (laughs) Chuck Swindoll put it this way, speaking of Chuck Swindoll. If you don't say it, they can't repeat it. Are you gossiping? Have you been party to gossip? Call it what it is and have it end with you. The false rumor that was spread about Nehemiah was that he was after the king's job. That's pretty serious. No truth in it, but it's pretty serious. What often happens with words like this is that they become planted in other people's minds, and then we find evidence to support what was planted there, even though it was false to begin with. It's not true. Oh, I see it now what that person's saying. Yeah, I see it. Now I see it. And we have evidence for our perception. A lady in an airport bought a book to read and a package of cookies to eat while she, was, while she waited for her plane. After she'd taken her seat in the terminal and gotten engrossed in her book, she noticed that the man one seat away from her was fumbling to open the package of cookies on the seat between them. She was so shocked that a stranger would eat her cookies that she didn't really know what to do. So she reached over and took one of the cookies and ate it. The man didn't say anything, but soon reached over and took another cookie. Well, the woman wasn't going to let him eat them all, so she took another cookie also. When they were down to one cookie, the man reached over, he broke the cookie in half, gave half to her, and he got up and left. The lady could not believe the nerve of this guy, but soon the announcement came to board the plane. Once the woman was aboard, still fuming over this man's audacity and puzzled over the whole incident, she reached into her pocketbook for a tissue. And wouldn't you know it, as she did, her hand landed on her still unopened package of cookies. Too late to apologize, she realized with shame that she was the rude one and the thief. The point? Our minds can really run away with us sometimes, and we actually start to believe and find evidence for false perceptions. We can support it. Say no to mindlessness. Look at verse 8. Nehemiah says, I sent them this reply. I love this verse. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. In other words, it's a figment of your imagination. It's a polite way of saying, liar. Let's call it what it is. Say no to mindlessness. Don't give godless chatter a foothold at all. They're just making up in their head. Let's move on. That's what Nehemiah does. I need to move on myself here. Number four, fourth area we need to say no. We need to say no to fear. We need to say no to fear. Nehemiah knows the intent of these threats. In verse 9, their goal is uncovered. It says, they are all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. You see, fear has the potential to cause their hands to weaken. Another translation of that phrase is, cause their hands to drop. You know what that's like when you see someone go, I give up. You've done it yourself. Your hands drop. 
Your resolve is weakened. You're demoralized. Is it fear? Is, has you stuck right now? Is it? Fear has the power to immobilize, immobilize us so that we don't take that first step. Or we don't turn that corner towards healing. Or we don't rebuild our lives. Or we don't enjoy God's best for our lives. Say no to fear that grips you right now. That leaves you paralyzed and unable to make a decision. Say no to that. What fears are keeping you from fulfilling what you believe God has put in your heart to do? Nehemiah says no to fear and instead he takes his fear to the Lord Nehemiah is feeling a little weak, and I would imagine he feels quite beat up right here. It's tough to keep your head in it when you know others are trying to knock it off. How does Nehemiah respond? Look at the end of verse 9. He says, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands. We see it again in Nehemiah. He is, he is a leader from the knees up. He prays. Strengthen my hands. Requesting the morale would be strengthened. He's praying that these tactics would not dishearten him or any of the workers. He responds in faith knowing that God would take care of his reputation. But life doesn't get any quieter for Nehemiah. He resolves to finish this. But there's another area Nehemiah needs to say no to, which is an illustration for us. Fifthly, we need to say no to compromise. We need to say no to compromise. Another attack knocks on Nehemiah's door. Well, actually, Nehemiah knocks on the door of a friend who calls himself a prophet. Look at verse 10. We've got some hard words here. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delmea, the son of Meatabel, who was shut in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you by night. They are coming to kill you. In other words, I'm here to help, buddy. Let's take a walk to the sanctuary and be safe from your enemies. I'm on your side. This is no friend. Verse 13 says, he lets us in what this is all about. It says, he has been hired to intimidate me. There's the fear factor again. So that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Walk him into the sanctuary. See the sin in his life and say, aha! Wow! This is hardball. I mean, is there someone in your face trying to discredit you like this? Or even close? It's disheartening. The scheme was to lure Nehemiah into the sanctuary. Only priests could enter. Nehemiah was not a priest. He had no business entering into the sanctuary even to save his life. This was huge. A slip up here by Nehemiah and the project would no doubt come to a screeching halt. All done. Now, could he have justified slipping to the temple for a little protection? Could he have rationalized that God would allow a little exception to the rule? After all, people are after him. Could he have been fooled by this prophet? Well, Nehemiah saw the flaw in their plan. He feared God rather than his own life. His commitment to obedience was stronger than his commitment to self-protection. And he knew that no prophet, no matter how convincing he may be, would contradict God's word. Now, the sneaky thing about this kind of scheme right here is that it's couched in the words, God told me. If I had a dime for every time someone said to me, God told me, huh, I'd be a rich man. 
God told me to leave my spouse. God told me to leave my church. God told me to send that scathing email to you. God told me. Really? Listen, if it doesn't line up with Scripture, God did not tell you. Follow the teaching, not the teacher. Follow Scripture, not the preacher. Because there are prophets for hire today who are giving a message that is contrary to Scripture. And Nehemiah knew that these words did not line up with Scripture, so he does the right thing. He says no to compromise, and he leaves the outcome in the capable hands of God. Is there a lesson here for us about handling our Tobias and some ballots? Yes, leave them with God. Don't take matters into your own hands. Oh, how tempting it is to chase the Tobias and Symbalots of our life who are making our lives miserable. Place them in God's hands and focus on what it is God has put in your heart to do. Where have you said yes to compromise? Where have you said yes to compromise? Maybe it's in your marriage vows. Maybe it is moral. Perhaps it's financial or some area of integrity in your work or at school. You, you, you've been cheating a little bit. Maybe it is, it's what you're tolerating in your thoughts or on the screen. Well, mark it down. Compromise chills the soul. Things won't get better. They will only get worse. Say no to compromise. I know I've asked this before, but I'm going to ask it again. Are you doing something today that you once said you would never do? Why is that? It's been said a compromise today will lead to a character trait tomorrow, and a character trait tomorrow will determine your future. If we are to carry out what God has put in our heart to do, we need to say no to compromise. We need to say no to distractions. We need to say no to reconsider a God-given conviction. We need to say no to mindlessness. We need to say no to fear. And learning to say no is not always about saying no to evil but saying no to the inferior. And that's the hard part. It's been said the good is the enemy of the better and the better is the enemy of the best. Now this is where most of us struggle. But this is a good thing, so I'll say yes to it. But it is, is it the best thing? What has the potential to divert your time and energy from the best things? As a church, we must constantly ask, What is pulling us away from our true mission? You need to ask that corporately. I need to ask that as a pastor. You need to ask that as an individual in this congregation. There are all kinds of invitations to get off your wall. And sadly, the last thing one knows is what to put first. An expert on the subject of time management was speaking to a class of business students. He stood in front of this group of high-powered overachievers and announced that it was time for a quiz. He then pulled out a one-gallon wide-mouth mason jar and set it on a table in front of him. He then took a dozen fist-sized rocks and he carefully placed each of those rocks one at a time into the jar. And when the jar was filled to the top and no more rocks would fit inside, he said, is this jar full? And everyone in the class answered, yes, it's full. The expert teacher replied, really? He then reached under the table and he pulled out a bucket of gravel. 
He dumped some gravel in the jar and he shook the jar, causing pieces of gravel to work themselves down into the spaces between the big rocks. He asked the group again, is this jar full? Well, by this time the class was on to him and they said, probably not, one of them answered. Good, he replied. He reached under the table and he brought out a bucket of sand. He started dumping the sand in this mason jar filled with rocks and filled with gravel. And 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 the sand went all into the spaces between the rocks and the gravel. Again, he asked, is this jar full? No, the class shouted. Then he grabbed the pitcher of water. And he began to pour it into this mason jar until the jar was filled to the brim with water. He looked up at the class and he asked, what's the point of this illustration? And one eager beaver raised his hand. He said proudly, the point is, no matter how full your schedule is, if you really try hard, you can always fit some more things into it. (laughs) Wrong, the speaker said. That's not the point. The truth this illustration teaches us is this. If you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in at all. What are the big rocks in your life, in my life, that must be given first priority? What are they? What is God calling you to do? Has the gravel, the sand, and the water filled up your life that you're not getting around to the things that matter the most? Those big rocks. What do you need to say no to? What do I need to say no to? After determining what it is that you must do, you will also need to discern what you must not do. Let's pray. Lord, I'm reminded of that well-known verse, Ephesians 2.10, that reminds us that you have prepared works in advance for us to do. Now that suggests that there are works that are not intended for us to do. Give me discernment on to know the difference. Give us the discernment as a church to know the difference. Help us, Lord, As people desiring to serve you well, desiring to love you more, desiring to to, uh, uh, do and be about kingdom work, help us to know what those big rocks are, things we need to be investing in, things we need to say yes, and that means no over here. Lord, shake us up in our priorities a little bit. Because when we get to the end, we see you face to face. You're not going to give us a long list of all the things we did unless there are those things that you called us to do. May we hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the example of Nehemiah. Continue to challenge us this message with this passage of scripture, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.